0: I have Terry Schauer here with me today, and you're going to learn a lot about her and her team by heading over to MindfulLandlord.com. And you can guess by just the title of that domain name, what we're going to be talking about today is landlording and property management. And I think we're going to delve into some mindset associated with it as well. So I really appreciate your time here today, Terry.
1: Thanks for having me on the show, Jack.
0: So I was looking through your book. And first of all, it's called The Mindful Landlord, which is appropriate. And I'll try to make sure to have that link in the show notes as well. But I have to start things off by asking yourself, why the name?
1: Yeah, why the name? So for me, mindfulness, and we can get into exactly what that is a bit later on, has been a game changer for me. And really, like my career, if I can call it that, up until now, has been two things. It's been learning to wear the property manager's hat as gracefully as I can. And that is for my clients and as an investor. And the other thing has been really training my mind or becoming more mindful. And then the effect that has had on my personal life, but like obviously also on my business life. So on my investing life. And so mindful and landlord, and that if there's one thing that I feel like is missing in the real estate space, it's really that mindfulness training.
0: With any kind of property management, property comes first. I was hoping you could start things off by talking a little bit about some of those best practices, especially in selecting a property in your experience.
1: Yeah. So I think it's hard to give a one-size-fits-all answer to do with this. I will start by saying that it's partly a question of business model. And I think there are some people who to do renovations. There's some people who like to do creative financing. For me, my secret sauce has always been property management. And so I've always had an eye out for poorly managed properties where I feel like my value add is upping the level of professionalism on the management. Now, it happens that my market in, I'm in Montreal, Canada is also like extremely rent controlled. So you got to think of us a little bit like New York in that we have this whole segment of protected tenants that it can be difficult to deal with. And it can also just be difficult to adjust rents to market. And there's like kind of this whole ecosystem that gravitates around that. So that's like the, I don't want to say the context into which I can drop this. And so for me, I can tell you, like when I say badly managed properties, it means that often owned by older landlords who maybe have not maximized their rents properly, who have maybe let their tenants get away with things they shouldn't be getting away with. And that if you know the rental laws very well, or if you have some kind of solutions and policies that you can put in place to be zero tolerance or just up the level of management, you are able to lose some of the dead weight. So some of the tenants who are maybe bringing down the property value with their habits and then the residents who remain are able to get better services and they're often very happy that we get involved because the level of of management of the property goes up and then obviously building value goes up as well. So I don't know if that's the kind of answer you were looking for, but yeah, in terms of identifying properties, like for my niche, it's really looking at things that have not been managed properly. And then there's also cutting expenses as well, or finding value adds that are going to up the revenue, but also provide value.
0: When you say not properly managed, what are some of those things that you've noticed that is a common thread amongst them that has caused them not to be properly managed? Is it just being lazy or is it something else, a deeper? me?
1: Yeah. I don't know if laziness is the right word. I think it's more, what I notice is that it's almost as if they're afraid of their own tenants. And I think it's a lot of people have either trouble saying no or else they get too aggressive too quick. And both of those things are bad because on the one hand, if you don't say no to your tenants when it's time to say no to them, they're going to end up eating you for lunch. I think that's the first thing. And the second thing is if you're too aggressive and you go in the other direction and immediately get into yelling matches or immediately want to take them to court and stuff like that, you're also going to burn yourself out. By just taking on a whole lot of battles that you don't want to take on. So I would say those are the two patterns. Like either it's even a bit like older people. There's a lot of baby boomers who have acquired property and they're now looking to liquidate because they've had enough of running it and they really bought it for a fraction of what it's worth today. And as a result, don't need to be very entrepreneurial about going and getting more value.
0: Is this one of those things that you would probably recommend to default to things in writing versus it seems like when we've bought any kind of properties from tired landlords, if you will, it's because they. It was a lot of it seemed to be done with a handshake instead of defaulting to some documentation.
1: Yeah. I think, look, I think one of my mantras in the book is really about professionalism. And I think putting things in writing is one level of professionalism, but like professionalism is like all sorts of things. And I'll just, communication is a great place to start. And I'll give you another tip as far as like the phone goes, right? If you are managing your phone line, like everybody has your personal line and they can text you at 11 o'clock at night, that's never going to go well because the tenants feel like they have this personal line to you and it becomes a personal relationship. And like, I've really seen that go well. And so when you think about what it's like to to interface with a professional landlord, you need to try to be that person. And so that means that, yes, get everything in writing, no handshakes have either a call center or set up some kind of a phone system or an email system that like doesn't give the tenants the impression that you're a one man show if you are a one man show. And it's even goes into how you handle maintenance requests or complaints. Make a commitment that if you call me, I'm going to return your phone call within 24 hours and do that. Communicate within business hours. Like I always say at the time when people did have my personal phone number, it's like you wouldn't expect your banker to call you back at 11 o'clock at night because you're having a problem getting into your online interface, right? So why would you expect that if the building's not burning, your property manager is going to pick up the phone and call you back because you found a mouse turd or because, you know, you're concerned about when you're going to be able to pay your rent? No, that's a nine to five conversation that gets made in a professional way. And if you be you project professionalism, that is what you will get back from people.
0: So what are some of those system and processes that you've put in place to elude this professionalism?
1: Yeah. So the phone is a big one. So no texting. Whenever I make outgoing phone calls, I'm always, my phone's always on the hidden number. And we have an IP phone that works for my team and we all have an extension number. And then that then goes through to my phone, but the tenants don't have my personal phone number. When I was starting out, I actually had two phones. I had one, a personal phone and I had a business phone and the business phone, was like on silent after 5 PM, obviously there was an emergency component where you have to be reachable. Then I would say, after 5 PM, text me. And then I would occasionally look at the phone, but I certainly would not be responding. And you can even take that one step further and like funnel communication. Like when we onboard tenants, we send them an email and they get a handout that says for your maintenance requests, please email here. For your administrative requests, please email here. And we prefer to receive requests by email, so we direct them there. But however you want to be communicated with, don't be afraid to educate people. And don't, for facility's sake, okay, I'm in a rush, let me text them. No, because then they're going to realize that they can deal with you that way. They're going to have your personal phone number. Then you're opening a door to something. I think communication is really a big one. You mentioned get everything in writing. Obviously, obviously you're going to put your your leases in writing, but one of the places where I hit a lot of snags in my career was dealing with contractors. And uh, because very often they're, you work with guys who like don't love their office aspect of their job and they'll just make a quick call or send you a quick text message from the site. Oh, I didn't realize this. Do you want me to just do this extra thing? But that, you know, everything has to be in writing. Payment terms need to be in writing. And uh, that's really a place where it's very important, again, to just be professional in how you deal with people. and even though the world is trying to suck you into this kind of unprofessional way of functioning, you set the standard and then other people will fall in line with it.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting that once you do set that standard and clearly communicate this is the way you work, more people, more times than not, people will adapt. Absolutely. But um, it's interesting.
1: Let me me just add, even like something like saying, it's our policy. So like when I started, I didn't have 100 units under management. Like I was having this conversation about a very small number of units, but it's like I would start saying to my tenants, it's our agency's policy to do X, Y, Z. And like you can say that if you only own one condo, no one's ever going to know any different. But just of saying something like that means that you're not going to be on the end of a lot of aggressive communication, because if your tenants are not happy with you, it's very easy for that to turn into a personal shouting match. But if you're like, look, I'm just agents at the office trying to do my job. I have to call you, your rent is is late. If you don't do something, this and this is going to happen to you. It's not personal. Like when you get a call like that from the credit card agency, you're not going to start insulting the person on the phone who called you. You know that they're making 15 bucks an hour doing their job. And like, for me, that's the, what I try to project is like, look, I'm just doing my job. And I think I am. (laughs) It's not an app.
0: And then you just confirmed your Canadian citizenship by saying Zed. (laughs) Ah, There you go. (laughs) So yeah, this is, uh, I find this really interesting. I'm going to change the course of this conversation slightly because I'd be curious as to what, if any, did your policies and procedures change during the last couple of years during the lockdowns and reacting to COVID?
1: I think obviously we we had very strict mask mandates here. So like, obviously we all had to be going to the mask ball for a while. (laughs) But besides that, I think aside from those like initial Three months where we weren't sure, are people going to be paying? How can we get our repairs done? There was a bit of chaos then, but then things fell into a pattern here that was pretty stable for two years. Like we had very strong lockdowns. We had, like I said, mask mandates. Our rental board was actually closed for six months, which meant that if people did not pay their rent, there was no possibility of eviction. But somehow the tenants didn't know that. The property managers knew it, but I feel like had the tenants known it, they would have leveraged that a lot more. But we actually didn't really have more defaults during COVID. So I wouldn't say our policies didn't really change much.
0: Yeah. I wish I could say the same. The residents in my market definitely knew it and took advantage of it. In fact, it it was painful to see I knowing. And then we had eviction moratoriums. It was painful to see new TV boxes in the dumpster and I know those residents weren't paying their rent. It was pretty rough. So based on that, though, did you learn any new policies, procedures during that two years that you've just kept rolling with because it was relatively effective and made made life a little easier for you?
1: Look, I would say no. I would also say that I think Canada and the States are probably pretty different ecosystems. And honestly, like a lot of my Units are in low-income areas, and like, I was shocked and very sad when I saw what happened to a lot of my tenants. And here, they a lot of like lower-income people were out of work. The government was providing two thousand bucks a month emergency income to everybody, and what that translated into on the ground was just people developing addictions problems in front of their screens in their units. And I I I think of one specific building where I had eight working people they didn't have like super like glitzy jobs but they were making like maybe middle wager just over all eight were working in covid all of them were at home the uber eats boxes are piling up outside and the level of like depression mental health just crazy issues that people had like really actually forced me to think about what our industry is doing, what's happening with affordability, the kind of decisions that we're collectively making as a society. Like for me, I really was like, wow, this is so brutal. And again, I don't think our governments reacted the same way, but like we were shut down here for two years and the fact of locking everybody up at home and providing government support for them, it basically gave people addiction and mental health disorders. And I think we're going to be paying for that for a long time collectively.
0: Yeah. Couldn't agree more on, on that front. One of the things that you have a byline on your on the front of your cover of your book where it says how to run rental property for profit and peace of mind. Could you elaborate a little bit more about the peace of mind bit of it? Because for sure, I I actually self-manage a couple of properties myself and it's far from peace of mind.
1: Yeah. So I guess now we're really getting into the terrain of mindfulness. And so I'm just going to take a minute or so to explain what mindfulness is and explain how it's a bit different from mindset. And then we'll come back to the peace of mind. So, sure. mindfulness is really understanding how your brain and your consciousness operates. And so, what does that mean? Like, we, there are basically three levels of consciousness that we have we have our thinking mind, which you can Think of it as the radio. Like your thinking mind is always talking, no matter what's going on. There's this constant narrative going on. Then there's the emotions, which are like weather systems. So I could be having a sunny day, I could be having a rainy day, but it's like the orientation or the feeling that there is behind. Everything. And then underneath that, there's what gets called the watcher or like pure consciousness, which is your awareness. And learn training your mind to be mindful is to really understand those three levels of consciousness and. Where they're useful, so your thinking mind is a great calculator. I and mean, if you need to make decisions where you need to weigh pros and cons and and do those kind of things, it's a great tool. But man, can it be sabotaging when it gets off on a bad track, right? Like you can have all sorts of negative self talk. You can get super anxious about something, and it can like just fire a lot of control very fast. The emotions, same thing. Like very often people will say, "Oh, I'm depressed," or "I am this." There. In that case, you're really identifying with an emotion. But an emotion is like a weather system. If you don't cling on to it, it comes in and it's going to move on out. And we run into trouble when we really try to grab onto it. And you're going to get the most bang for your buck if you learn to identify with presence or this thing called the watcher. And training in mindfulness is basically learning to be able to do that. And so where do we come back to peace of mind? Well, the more mindful you're able to be, the more you're able to make decisions that are financially the right decisions for you, so for profit, but also to not take on things that are going to negatively affect your quality of life, your mental quality of life. And in order to do that, you really have to be mindful about what are the checks and balances? What am I sacrificing if I make this decision? Why am I making this decision? And then obviously also when your mind or your emotions get out of whack or start getting spinny, you learn how to Just take the volume down on that. Reset yourself and cultivate presence.
0: Yeah, you get something there regarding the different aspects. Because especially when communicating with tenants, it's easy to lead by that emotion. Whether it's because they're always going to come with to you with an excuse, or and it has a direct impact on your decisions when it comes to that. And that's why I was leaning into the concept of pointing to what's in writing and your policies. Because frankly, every time that I've gotten in trouble when it comes to property management, it's caving in on somebody's story, if you will. No,
1: but absolutely. But that's exactly what it is, right? Is that if mindfully set up your policies or you set your goals in a specific direction, and then something comes along, whether it's a sad story, somebody's sad story, or whether it's something that's going on in your own life, it's this capacity to not be derailed by that. And I think like, What I'm trying to describe is really like a methodology for mental training that if you're able to cultivate that, like it translates into more peace of mind in real estate, but it works in every other aspect of life. And I'm going to also just take this opportunity to outline the difference between mindset, because this is like one of my pet peeves. I feel like in the real estate industry, everyone's always talking like mindset. And what does that actually mean? I can think positive affirmations all day, or I can have this like self-talk, which is basically the thinking mind, right? Like when we talk about mindset, it's what am I doing with my thoughts? But the problem is if you don't really align your whole mind and you're not able to understand, okay, I am not my thinking mind. I am the watcher and I have thoughts, but it's very different than to say, I am my thoughts. And like my problem with this whole mindset thing is that when you're having a, you're very stressed about something, try to control your thoughts. It's not going to work. And again, I learned this after years of competing in combat sports, but because that's such a stressful situation, you really learn to disassociate yourself from some of those stress reactions, be they emotional or thinking in order to get the most out of your performance. And if you can transfer that into your real estate life, you're going to just be able to align yourself and attain your objectives in a better way.
0: That's really interesting, especially the concept of being a watcher or I, I really appreciate you spending some time on that and defining the difference between mindset and mindfulness. You brought up your competitive sports. I think I saw that you were a three-time Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion or race.: right. <laughs> Jiu-jitsu Jiu- is a hard sport to begin with. I can't even imagine being a champion at that level. But could you spend a little time talking about some of the lessons learned on the mat ver- and what you've brought to the business world?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, Brazilian jiu-jitsu was my retirement sport. Before that, I spent 10 years kickboxing. And at, I had a couple years of years kickboxing semi-pro in France.
0: So it's really... good. Okay, been- just a second. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu is your retirement sport? Yeah. <laughs> I know it's weird. Most <laughs> people go golfing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I was retiring from
1: competitive kickboxing, which is a harder sport than jujitsu. But I think the lessons that I really learned about mindfulness were in my kickboxing career. And you have to think of this, it's the most stressful thing that you can do besides maybe actually going to fight in a war because you're, you're gonna step into the ring and it's possible that either you or the other person gets knocked out and the threat of bodily harm is right there. And you have to get yourself into a state of mind where despite that, you can perform. And because I had these objectives that I really wanted to do something in my sport, I realized that mentally I wasn't tough enough or I didn't have the right alignment to be able to attain my objectives. And that's when I said about this kind of quest to let me put myself, let me learn the mindset that's going to, not mindset, let me learn, train my mind so that I'm going to be able to perform in an optimal way in that setting. And that's exactly what I described is to learn to disassociate those different operations of consciousness thinking, having emotions, and then pure presence. And let me learn how to exist in flow. Let me learn how to exist in pure presence so that I can use that and turn it on whenever I need it. And then the fact that translates into something so powerful in the business world. I was running this sports career and at the same time developing my real estate business. And I just noticed that those skills transferred so well. And like I was almost sad that nobody in the real estate field is talking about this stuff because For me, like, it's a little bit like dieting. Everybody knows what you have to do to lose weight, but nobody does it. And why does nobody do it? Because they don't understand themselves enough to align their actions with their objectives. And that's all mental. And in real estate, it's the same thing. There are so many people who are, you know, what I call the perpetual students who take more and more courses and never dare to act. Or else there's people who get to a certain plateau and are able to level up their game because of fear. Or because of some other kind of roadblock that they're not addressing. And it's not a problem of lack of information. We have so much information at our disposal that that is just not a reason anymore. And if you're stuck at a certain place, I'm going to be willing to bet that it's not lack of information. It's lack of mental training and alignment to be able to act in a way that's consistent with your goals. And that has to come through mental training. It doesn't come from anywhere else.
0: With all that being said, do you have some strategies or tactics to, that somebody could implement today, like activities for that matter, that after they are done listening to this episode, that they could sit down and do to try to get to to, towards, or at least make the first step towards that mindful state?
1: Yeah. There's so like very, I'm going to say something that a lot, like a lot of people have heard a lot, but don't implement it. Meditation is a really great tool because in that, you're basically training your mind to come back to the present moment constantly. If You don't want to take the time. It's the commitment to learn how to meditate and be able to do that so 15 minutes a day. If you don't feel like you can do that, I would say just informationally beginning to understand the functioning of the mind. And my book's a great place to start, but there are very many resources on this that you can. There's even podcasts that you can listen to that really talk about Just how does your mind work? Because it's it's the same thing as with, I always come back to dieting. But if I want to lose weight, I need to understand a minimum about nutrition. And just by having that knowledge, I'm going to automatically start making better choices. And I think it's the same thing with mindfulness. Just by having more education about how your mind functions, by yourself, you start making those decisions. And I can give you one very concrete, easy exercise that people can walk away with if that's more what you're looking for. So there's this thing called monkey mind. And you know how I was talking about uh, our thoughts are constantly chattering in the background. It's like a monkey. So one minute it's looking at the next piece of fruit. The next minute it's getting mad at another monkey. And so you got to figure this creature is just like jumping from branch to branch. And an untrained mind will experience thoughts like that. And so if you want to try to train the monkey mind, what you have to do is keep bringing your mind back. So I'll give you an example. Say I'm walking the dog. I can just focus on being present in the park, with the changing leaves, with my dog, and my mind will run off. That's what thinking minds do. They run off left and right, what's for dinner. My husband said this morning, I'm still mad about it. My kid, I've got to pick him up. And every time you can see your mind going off, just bring it back, bring it back. And even if you don't want to do sitting meditation, if you have 10 minutes a day in which time to just bring your mind back to the present moment, bring your mind back to what you're doing, that has an amazing ROI long-term.
0: Yeah. I don't know if this is something that it would be in the same lines, but I heard a while back the concept of, as entrepreneurs, we have a tendency of always chasing the next rabbit or the, what do they say? If you're a dog, you chase two rabbits, you're not, you're going to be left without any. But somebody gave me the tip to, when you think of something, jot it down a in a place that you can count on. And then you, now you know that it's, it's safe, it's secure, and you don't have to keep revisiting it because that's what I would typically do. And it just becomes a, a monkey, if you will, in yeah. my mind. It, my mind would keep recurring or thinking this over and over again. And when I started getting into the habit of jotting it down or putting it in, into a tool that I could refer to at a later date, it's it starts to quiet things a little bit. Yeah,
1: yeah. But it's also, look, we all have 10 minutes in our day to not take our thoughts too seriously. And that's the purpose of the exercise. It's just to stop being so stuck to your own thoughts. Stop I, thinking that because my thinking mind says something, I have to believe it, right? We're trying to create some space there. And so like, for, no matter, I say walking the dog, because that's one of the active ways in which I do that. But like, however your life is, you have 10 minutes to be present every day. And yes, it takes effort. Yes, it takes training. But that's how you build mental fortitude, right? Mm-hmm. Set so like project like anything else, like going to the gym. You have 10 minutes a day to do that.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I just want to remind everybody, MindfulLandlord.com to learn a little bit more. I'm going to make sure to have that link to your book also in the show notes, Terry. But uh, this was especially interesting today. And I just realized we've chewed up half an hour already. And I feel like we've just touched the tip of the iceberg. I'm reluctantly going to wrap this up. A little bit in the fact that I do have some rapid fire questions I'd like to ask that uh, might give people a few action items to take away here today as well. Go ahead. I'm ready. So you've already, maybe you'll focus on mindset here, but is there a real estate investing or mindset myth you'd like to bust today that just has been driving you crazy?
1: I'm going to refer back to that mindset versus mindfulness. I feel a lot of the industry gurus do us all a disservice when they keep going on and on about mindset, because I think affirmations and thinking positive and all of those kind of things, it's like very thinking mind heavy. And to me, the real gains are understanding how your mind works and getting those three levels of consciousness to be working in the same direction, because you're trying to like force positive affirmations down your throat every morning when you get out of bed. It has this false. Sometimes it can just ring false. And I think really making a difference between mindfulness and mindset is important.
0: Yeah. You referred to it as almost like a diet. but You talked about weight before. It's like being on a diet or making a life change. It's, it is very different the way you're describing it. I like that comparison. Outside of your book, what book would you recommend everybody checking out or what are you reading right now?
1: <laughs> Those are two different questions. Okay. I obviously Rich Dad Poor Dad, but I think that's too hackneyed. I really love Jordan Peterson's 12 12 Rules for Life. That book has had had an impact on me. And I think if someone's not read it, I think it's a really good way of making sure that your actions are supporting your goals. What am I reading right now? I'm actually reading a book called Poverty in Canada. It's, so I'm planning my second book, which is actually going to be looking at the contradictions that exist in the affordable housing space. Because like I said, during COVID, I was so... Maybe taken aback and saddened by some of the stuff I saw on the ground that I felt like I needed to understand. What is creating this situation where people end up smoking weed and sitting in front of their TVs all day long? It's not like one person made that choice. It's like there's a whole segment of society that's making that choice. And anyway, I just feel like I need to understand that.
0: Sure. What is the biggest landlording mistake you've made and what did you learn from it?
1: It's going to be on renting. And so when I'm doing tenant selection, I always have a gut feeling and I have a very rigorous selection process that is, there's a whole chapter on that in the book. But every single time I've gone against my instincts, I have regretted it. So if you have a bad feeling or if there's some bad data point in a file that you've looked at, don't rent to the people. My dad always says, hungry man eats poison don't eat the poison just because your unit's not rented because once the people are in there, it's going to be not worth the headache.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? Buy more buildings. (laughs) I get that more times than anything. Yeah. Starting early and buy more. That's the two I'm getting. Yeah. And if you could give someone a single tip or trick that they could implement right now in under 60 seconds, what would it be? Oh,
1: yeah, I got a good one. Take responsibility. The minute you find excuses, I actually just did a segment on this on my Instagram the other day because it's just so omnipresent. You can have results or you can have excuses. You can't have both because if you're looking for excuses, your mind is looking for reasons why it's not your fault. Whereas in order to make things happen for yourself, you just have to be 100% responsible. So results or excuses. You got to pick.
0: I really appreciate your time, Terry. Is there a question or concept you wish we would have covered here today?
1: That's a good question. Nope, I think you were pretty thorough.
0: I think we could have went, like we could have kept going on and on. Mindfullandlord.com. I'm going to make sure to have that link in the show notes with all the corresponding links. So head over to reimastermind.net for that. If you found some value in today's episode, do us a quick favor and share it with another person who could use a little landlord advice and help them find Terry. I really appreciate your time here, Terry. You're welcome back anytime. I hope you'll take me up on that.
1: Thanks for having me on.